Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Alrighty, we're in the Gospel of John, and today we're starting chapter 7. Uh, we've been journeying through these chapters, and one of the things you will notice is that John opens with a cosmic view of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes us all the way back to the beginning of creation, and he shows us that Christ was there at the beginning, which means that he had no beginning. He is the eternal Son of God. But um, as John's gospel unfolds, he moves from a distant scope as, as Christ is viewed by many, many people, and it begins to narrow and narrow as we go through the gospel, as we head towards Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where Christ will be crucified. And so we're making our way there. And some people want to get him there sooner, and others are happy to allow him to get there at the right time. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. But before we talk about that, I want to mention um, a terrifying moment in my childhood. Um, and it was a terrifying moment for a number of reasons. But uh, one in particular, and Afluma, don't go to the next slide yet, um, was when I was 10 years old, uh, I played for a, a football team in PE called Westview. And that season, we won everything. We won the league, we won the cup, we won the shield, we won every, every prize you could think of. We had a really good team. But our biggest rivals in under 10 were Callies. And so it was Westview versus Callies. This was always the biggest rivalry. And junior soccer back in those days was at a high. But um, I, I played striker, I played up front, and I was fairly tall for my age. Um, but we were terrified of Callies. And the reason we were terrified of Callies was because they had a huge defender. And because they had this huge defender, and he was, he was not only tall, he was strapping. It was like he looked like he was 16 playing under 10. And, uh, and, but that wasn't the only problem. The problem was that because I was striker and he was defender, we would spend most of the game near each other. Or rather, most of the game, I would be colliding into him. Now, that's not the most scariest part. The scariest part is his name. You could put it up. His name was Lord Bentley. <laughs> no jokes. His, that was his name. And, and, and so it was like, I was going to meet the Lord. And I was terrified. And, uh, and, and I did. I bumped into him a number of occasions I think we won the game, and, uh, and, and, but I mean, it was just like so intimidating because I was colliding numerous times throughout the game with the Lord. <laughs> as far as I know, Jesus didn't play soccer, but he was on a collision course with the world. And we see in today's text a collision of sorts. We see the Lord Jesus colliding with the world. Why? Why would Jesus collide with the world? Why would there be a collision course? Well, in verse 7 of today's text, we see this. It says this, The world cannot hate you, Jesus is talking to his brothers, but it hates me. Why? Here it is. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus comes as the way, the truth, and the life, and the world hates it. And the, and, and the implication is this. The implication is that even the followers of Jesus are on a collision course 
with the world. And we need to understand that as followers of Christ, if Christ collided with the world, his followers are also going to collide with the world because we're following him in the way, we're following him in the truth, and we're following him as our life. And if he collided with the world, we too will collide with the world, which is why later on John in chapter 15, verse 19 tells us this. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. No collision, right? Why? Because you're just like them. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So in our text today, we're going to see Jesus is surrounded by his brothers, his half-brothers. These are his biological half-brothers, and they misunderstand him. But also we're going to see Jesus surrounded by Jewish leaders who want to mistreat him, not just mistreat him, but actually kill him. So we're going to read the first 36 verses. It's quite a long reading, so hang in here with me, and then we'll get to work. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is halfway through the week. The feast was a week-long feast. So halfway through the week, he goes into the temple now publicly. About the middle of the feast, verse 14, he goes into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. 
Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. They were thinking Bethlehem. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? We're going to look at this under three main headings. The world misunderstands Jesus, the world hates Jesus, and the world needs Jesus. Number one, the world misunderstands Jesus. What's happening here is it's the Feast of the Booths, which is taking place in Jerusalem. Like I said, it was a week-long festival, and all of the Jews across the nations who've been scattered since Daniel's time are encouraged to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was an acknowledgement of God's provision for his people during their wilderness wanderings. It was a throwback to the Exodus, how God had provided for the people during the Exodus. And so they had a week of celebrations, a week of feasting, a week of honoring God. And so Jerusalem was buzzing. Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims who had taken a journey to come to Jerusalem. And the brothers say, hey, Jesus, we think you should go to Jerusalem. Let's leave this outback old town. Kind of think, imagine with me, dispatch, moving to Cape Town, right? And, he's, and, and the, the brothers have got this all figured out. They're like, Jesus, if you want to grow your influence, if you want to grow your social media influence, if you want to grow your profile, if you want to be a true influencer, you can't stay in dispatch batch, you've got to go to Cape Town, right? This is how the brothers are thinking. They totally misunderstand Jesus's mission. They think he's about a political campaign. They, they think that Jesus is power hungry and seeking glory, and so they want to help him. But they're not helping, right? In fact, they completely misunderstand who he is, and they misunderstand his mission, and Jesus says to them at first, no, I'm not going. I'm not going to Jerusalem because your motives are wrong. But then a few days later, he doesn't change his mind. It's just that he wasn't going to go when they wanted him to go. And a few days later, he does go. And the text tells us that he goes secretly. Did you see that? He doesn't go publicly. Only through the middle of the feast, halfway through the week, does he actually go into the temple and he's seen publicly. So what is going on here? Well, the brothers have all the wrong reasons for him to go. The brothers have wrong motives. They totally misunderstand his mission. But also the Jewish leaders, they misunderstand his identity. And have a look at verse 14 and 16. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. 
And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You see, the history of teaching in the temple was always by the rabbis. And the rabbis were ranked. They were ranked according to pedigree. They were ranked according to whether they had an MDiv or if they had a PhD or some kind of rabbinical history, pedigree. And they are marveling at this new teaching. They they are confounded. They can't actually imagine where could this guy have been schooled only to discover he's from Bethlehem of all places. Can anything good come from Bethlehem? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can, can anything good? And then he says in verse 16, so Jesus answers them. He knows what they're thinking. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And this rocks them. It rocks them because Jesus roots his teaching not in the authority of rabbinical scholars, not in the authority of some prized institution in Jerusalem, but he roots his teaching and authority in the Father who sent him. And by doing this, again, he reveals his identity. And then he says something really interesting. Because they have completely misunderstood him. They, they're thinking he's just a, another prophet, you know, who went to a good school in Jerusalem. And then he says this, he exposes them in verse 17 and 18. He says this, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In other words, the real reason the Jewish leaders misunderstand Jesus is because they are not willing to submit to God's word. Did you see that in verse 17? If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know. And the Jesus just totally exposes their misunderstanding is because not because they don't have enough information. Think, think of some of your friends today, and we've said this because of all the miraculous signs that Jesus be doing. It's not a lack of evidence that people don't believe. Don't be fooled by that. Some people say, oh, I'll believe if I see a miracle. No, you, you don't know your own heart. It's not a lack of evidence or a lack of historical account or a lack of revelation. No, no, it's a lack of willingness. Your heart is seeking your own glory, which is what he goes on to say in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own what? Glory. Even though they were religious observers, they were not seeking the glory of God. And when you're not seeking the glory of God, you're not willing to submit to the will of God because your will wants your will. And this is the problem with these Jewish leaders. They were not willing to hear Christ because they were not willing to submit to Scripture. They spoke of Scripture. They they even praised Moses. We're going to see that just now. They, They were willing to talk about Scripture, but really not submit to Scripture. And I think this is an important key for us even today. Are you willing to submit to the teaching of Scripture? Not everything in the Bible is easy, right? Not everything that's taught in the Bible is culturally acceptable. 
We live in a day and age where what is taught in the Bible is frowned upon. People mock it. People scoff at it. And, and because of that, people are giving up. People are going, well, maybe we need to reinterpret Scripture. Reinterpret it in light of the culture. Reinterpret it in light of what our own hearts think. And Jesus sets this record straight and he says, no, 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 no. That's not how we do it. When we come to the Bible, our will submits to God's will. We're not interpreters looking down on Scripture. We come underneath Scripture and we allow the Scripture to interpret our own hearts. And they didn't understand this because their eyes were set on their own glory. So not only does the world misunderstand Jesus, but it actually gets worse. Point number two is they actually end up hating Jesus. Look again at verse 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. This is really interesting. Jesus is telling his brothers that there's not enough of a distinction between you and the world. You just like the world, which is why the world can't hate you. Christian today, this is... An important question for us to ask. Is there a measure of resistance that you're experiencing? Let's change the word. Hate hate can be a harsh word, and it doesn't always start with hate, but often it starts with resistance. Resistance or rejection or ridicule. Christian, here today, I want to ask you this question. Is there a measure of resistance? Is there a measure of ridicule? Is there a measure of rejection coming your way because you believe what the Bible teaches? And if so, that's a good thing. It's a sign of God's grace upon your heart and life. You're in good company because Jesus says the world hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus was very clear with what's right and with what's wrong. And because he was clear on what's right and what's wrong, the world hated him. And we live in the same world. It's amazing how things haven't really changed that much. It's the same problems repackaged. I mean, it goes all the way back right through. I mean, you read the early accounts of the Old Testament. It's pretty hectic. The sexual immorality, the the, the sexual revolution. Yes, it is rife in our world today, but it's not new. It's just repackaged. And Jesus was very clear on what's right and what's wrong, and therefore he was hated. Church, this is nothing new. We continue to hold to truth. We continue to hold to what is right and what is wrong. We don't do it arrogantly. No, no, we do it with the heart of Christ. We do it with kindness. We do it with patience. And we do it because Jesus did it, and we want to honor Jesus. And if and when we do it, we too will be ridiculed. We too will be resisted. Listen to what Timothy says uh, in 2 Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there is hatred because there is a right way and a wrong way. But also, there is hatred because there is religious hypocrisy. 
Now, this is interesting. Verse 19, have a look here. Jesus says to the religious leaders, now you must think with me, the religious leaders also like what's right and wrong. Right? That's the whole point of being a religious leader, is, is you build your movement on morals. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. But that's not Christianity. Right? Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is acknowledging that we can't get to God through our good morals. That it's actually not moralism that brings us into the presence of God, but it's Christ's merit that brings us into the presence of God. So Christianity is vastly different to the moralism that we see here. But the religious leaders of the day had built an whole empire around moralism. That's not to say that we must acknowledge what's right and wrong, but that's not the center of Christianity. So Jesus then says to the religious leaders, because now they're seeking to kill him, right? They're seeking to kill him, the world, the religious leaders, they, they hate him. And then Jesus says to them, has not Moses given you the law? So now he wants to use their own strategy. Remember the law tells us what's right and wrong. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, Jesus says, listen, guys, you guys are classic religious hypocrites. You honor Moses, you honor the law of Moses, but Moses himself says you shall not murder. What's wrong with you people? You are hypocrites. You are breaking the very law that you highly esteem. And then he says, and none of you keeps the law. And the implication is, he alone does. And that's the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law is not that we try and climb and find our way to God, but that we look to Christ who did make a way for us to get to God. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. The law was never a ladder. The law is a mirror. The law is a mirror to reveal our need for a Savior. And they just didn't get it. Not only did they misunderstand it, they hated him because of it. And they wanted to kill him. But the good news is, though, even though the world hates Jesus, the world desperately needs Jesus. Our third and final point. The world needs Jesus. Jesus' brothers, right at the beginning, they're, they're intense, aren't they? they? They really want to get him to Jerusalem. They, they really want to wow the crowds. You know, Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem, and maybe he's going to turn more water to wine. Maybe he's going to raise more people from the dead. Maybe he's going to do more miracles. Whatever it is, they want him to be powerful, and they want him to be famous. But twice in this passage, Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. Because Jesus knows what awaits for him in Jerusalem. If he goes to Jerusalem and he starts to teach and preach and do all that he needs to do, he could get arrested before the time appointed. So have a look at verse 30 because he says it twice, my time has not yet come. And then in verse 30, we'll read from verse 28, he says it interestingly. He says, so Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. So he's appealing to their humanness. He's saying, listen, you know that I'm from Bethlehem, but I, I have not come of my own accord, he says. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. 
I know him, talking about his father, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. They were infuriated because he was declaring himself to be God. He's saying, I came from the Father and I'm going to go back to the Father. And and they're infuriated. So their conclusion, verse 30, is they want to arrest him and they want to try him for blasphemy, which will lead to his death. But Jesus knows that it's not his time. It's not his time. But the time will come. There is an appointed hour, right? There is an hour, and the hour will be an hour of agony. An hour that no one expected. And they can't arrest him now. Why? Well, there are a few reasons, but one of them we see in the text is that it is the Feast of Booths, right? It's not the Feast of Passover. And it was appointed that Jesus would die in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. Why? Well, because that's what the appointed time was. Because of all the prophetic words and because of all the prophetic pictures. It was not to be during the Feast of Booths. It was to be during the Feast of Passover to commemorate what happened at the Passover would be fulfilled in Christ. That there would be a death and through the death blood would be shed and the blood would save a whole nation, a whole people. And so how is the world going to be saved? Well, the world's going to be saved not during the Feast of Booths, but over the time of the feast of the Passover. And it's not going to be through the Passover, it's going to be through the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. And how is Jesus going to save the world? Well, it's very clear in this text, he's going to save the world by an hour of death. When he goes to Jerusalem, at the right time, he will go to Jerusalem, and instead of being praised in Jerusalem, he will be betrayed in Jerusalem. Instead of being honored in Jerusalem, he'll be arrested in Jerusalem. Instead of being worshipped in Jerusalem, he will be crucified in Jerusalem, which is why he then says in verse 33 and 34, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Now it's not the right time. It's the wrong Passover, a wrong, wrong feast. And then I am going to him who sent me. He's talking about his death. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Jesus will die. Jesus will rise from the grave. Jesus will then ascend to heaven. And that is where he's going. And then he says these words, you cannot come there. Wow. The religious leaders will not make it. They will not get to heaven, basically. Why? Because they stubbornly refuse to receive him as Messiah. They stubbornly refuse to receive him as Lord. But the good news is that many will. Many, many will. And he will come into Jerusalem And he will not receive a crown of gold. He will receive a crown of thorns. He will come into Jerusalem and he will not sit on a Roman throne. He'll be nailed to a Roman cross. And all of this in fulfillment of the Passover. 
that this is the way the world will be saved. Let me frame it to you the way the Apostle Paul would frame it to you. See, what we've got to think here is that if we're going to be an exiled people, if we're going to be a people who've been resisted by the world, rejected by the world, the reason we've been rejected by the world is because we're following Jesus. And Jesus was resisted and rejected by the world. And so if he was, then we too will be. And how is it then that he's going to regather a people? How is it that Jesus is going to save a people out of this world? Well, the only way he does it is by he himself being rejected. He himself being exiled. He himself being crucified. And, and in Peter, not Paul, in Peter we read this amazing explanation in 1 Peter 2. Verses 4 to 8, and then I'm done. He says, As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he he quotes the Old Testament. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He, he will come, not, not now. During the, he goes during the Feast of Booths, but it's not his time to die, but he will go, and he will go there, and then the builders, who are the religious leaders of the day, they will pick up a stone, and they'll look at the stone, and they'll look at Christ, and they'll turn it over, and they'll turn it over, and they'll look at Jesus, the stone, and they'll say, no, what a ridiculous stone, and they'll throw it aside. We're not building with this stone But the stone is chosen, and that stone is precious, and that stone is going to go over there, and there will be a new temple, and there will be living stones gathered to that stone, and that stone will become the cornerstone of the people of God. And how was it, how how did it happen? How were a rejected, hated people gathered? by he himself being rejected, he himself being cast aside. Church, this is what Jesus has done for us. Isn't this incredible? That he not only tasted death for us, but he himself was hated, despised, and rejected, but it was the means of our salvation. Shall we pray and thank him together? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that although you were rejected and despised, you are our cornerstone. You are our foundation. You are our hope. You are our joy. And although the world misunderstands you and although the world hates you and resists you and rejects you, and we get a taste of that, we also see that 
that that very act of rejection was the glory of God being revealed because it's the means of our salvation. That you were exiled and you were rejected so that we might be brought home. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is our salvation. Your, your death instead of ours. Your rejection. Your crucifixion is the grounds of our hope so that we could call you Father, so that we could honor you as Lord, so that we could submit our wills to your will and say, Father, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come in our lives this day we pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for what you went through for us. The stone that the builders rejected is our cornerstone. And we want to sing your praises all the days of our lives. We want to be a thankful, rejoicing people because of all you've done for us. We give you thanks. Amen.